The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I would say that the policy is a success exclusively in the sense that the ultimate objective of the United States was to keep European powers out, and the policy effectively did that. It was a failure in every other respect. I mean, the United States was trying to stabilize and strengthen these states as a way of keeping Europe out, and instead it destabilized them and, you know, essentially ended up in situations where the United States was occupying many of them and, and in other ways much more involved in their affairs than it wanted to be. I'm Jack Goldsmith, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 28, 2023. The United States in the early 21st century has been involved in a so-called forever war involving military threats, interventions, occupations, counterinsurgencies, and the like. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the United States engaged in an at least superficially analogous, many-decades series of interventions in the Western Hemisphere, with the aim of achieving regional hegemony. This earlier period is the topic of a new book by Sean Mirsky, an attorney at Arnold and Porter and a visiting scholar at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. The book is called We May Dominate the World, Ambition, Anxiety, and the Rise of the American Colossus. I sat down with Sean to discuss what he describes as the United States' regional rampage of staggering scope and scale in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the aims and consequences of these military adventures, and the lessons they hold for today, both for U.S. foreign policy and for understanding the aims of rising powers like China. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 28, Ambition, Anxiety, and the Rise of the American Colossus. Sean, in the introduction to your book, you say, and I'm going to quote from the introduction, that over the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the United States went on a regional rampage of staggering scope and scale. There were coups and counter-coups, protectorates and annexations. Invasions were followed by occupations and occupations by insurgencies and counterinsurgencies. The result, you say, was a trail of broken states and mangled nations. That's what the United States left behind. So it's a really remarkable tale. Can you just kind of summarize what happened and why? Absolutely. So the book covers the period from roughly the start of the Civil War to the dawn of the Cold War. But the 
focus is on the period from roughly 1898 to 1918, when the U.S. really went on this uh, streak of interventionism that you mentioned. And during that period, uh, the United States was using a force against its neighbors, an average of almost nearly two times a year, which is a really remarkable kind of statistic. And I think even compared to sort of the U.S. record of interventionism in the Cold War and post-Cold War, it stands out as being uh, relatively unprecedented in American history. And the, the question that my book in some sense set out to answer is why? Why was it that the United States used force or threatened force so often against its neighbors during this time? And not only in minor ways, but as the quote you read out suggested, also in major ways, including occupations, annexations, and really kind of uh, massive sort of interventions and military expeditions into its neighbor's affairs. And there's a lot of different factors that went into the picture, but the overall thesis of the book is that a large part of these uh, interventions were motivated essentially by uh, defensive rationales. Okay, say more. Defensive in what sense? Why were we, you know, running all over the region and occupying and annexing these states for defensive purposes? The, the answer actually takes us back almost a century to uh, 1823, when President Monroe declares the Monroe Doctrine. And as folks uh, might remember from their AP U.S. history classes, the Monroe Doctrine was essentially a giant keep out sign in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And it essentially promised European powers that the United States would not interfere in their affairs. And in exchange, Europe's powers were forbidden from trying to recolonize Latin America or otherwise to extend their political systems to the Western Hemisphere. And so it was a sort of defensive way of keeping Europe's great powers out of the uh, Western Hemisphere. And the, the overall thrust of the strategy was because the United States was the strongest of the independent powers in the Western Hemisphere, so long as the U.S. could keep great, uh, Europe's great powers at bay across the ocean, over time, it would end up being essentially the only great power in the Western Hemisphere. And for reasons we can get into, that was uh, a strategic goal of great importance to, to American policymakers throughout most of the country's history. And so American foreign policies from 1823 forward was based on this idea that Europe should not be able to cross the Atlantic Ocean and establish itself in the Western Hemisphere. For many decades, that was essentially just aspirational. The U.S. didn't have a lot of power to do anything about that until after the Civil War. But after the Civil War, the U.S. starts to have the capability to do something about it. The U.S. also enters a, a geopolitical moment where it really uh, feels that the threat of European expansion into the Western Hemisphere is especially acute. And the reason that's the case is because of something called the Second Age of Imperialism, which is this period starting in roughly the 1870s where Europe's great powers go on this colonialist terror through the rest of the world. And so this is when the scramble for Africa happens. This is when Asia and the Middle East are carved up. And during this period, the, the European great powers, I mean, France, Great Britain, and Germany alone from 1870 to 1900 colonized 9 million square miles, which is twice the size of Europe itself. By the time you get to World War II, 84% of the world's landmass is controlled by colonial powers. And the big exception here is Latin America. But for Americans, there's this concern that unless they continue to stay vigilant and until, unless they continue to enforce the Monroe Doctrine, uh, Latin America will essentially be the next uh, area of the world that falls to Europe's predations. And so uh, during this period, the U.S. is extremely, extremely concerned about Europe's great powers coming in and establishing themselves. And so 
it essentially ends up trying to preempt European expansion uh, through any number of mechanisms. But the argument I make in the book is that one of those mechanisms ends up being American expansion. And so is it fair to say that, and we'll get into some of the details of what the United States did, but is it fair to say that during this period, the United States wasn't engaging in these adventures for imperialist reasons, but you say for defensive reasons, is that a distinction we can draw? It depends what you mean by imperialist reasons. Well, let, let me just say a few more words and then you can answer. I mean, we usually think, I think, you know, the high school understanding of the history of American imperialism is that it basically got going hard with the Spanish-American War. And so I'm just wondering whether you are challenging that or whether these the interventions that the multiple interventions and exercises of influence in the many decades before 1898 was something else with how did it relate to imperialism i mean you say it was in response it was trying to prevent european imperialism but to explain the united states aims is what i guess i'm asking yeah so so the united states as i mentioned was primarily interested in preventing europe from establishing itself in the western hemisphere whether by colonizing latin america or by essentially taking over parts of it. And so the the United States, I think, to prevent that from happening, essentially tried to ensure that the hemisphere was stable and, and strong enough that it could repel European incursions. And from the Uni- United States' perspective, a number of its neighbors were extremely, extremely uh, unstable and disordered and presented these massive power vacuums. Uh, a, a large number of our neighbors were racked by civil war and revolution. They had enormous debts uh, to European banks and European states. And in a lot of ways, I think in, to use today's terminology, these neighbors were failed or failing states. And from the U.S. perspective, these are the sort of states that end up being an invitation to European imperialism. And the United States sort of observed as much from looking at the way Europe had expanded across the rest of the world. But it also stood to reason that a state that's internally divided and racked by civil war and revolution is one that's not going to be very effective at sort of repelling a foreign great powers uh, intrusions. And so the, the U.S. was very concerned that all these uh, vulnerable states in its neighborhood essentially presented a vulnerability for itself. And so what the U.S. grand strategy of this time was oriented at was essentially stabilizing and strengthening these the, the weakest of its neighbors. The problem is that the United States never figured out an especially good way of doing that. Uh, at first, before kind of the Spanish-American War, it was mostly interested in doing it through sort of indirect means, uh, through trade and diplomacy. But those methods didn't work out. And from the U.S. perspective, the threat was growing more and more acute, especially during the 1890s. And so the Spanish-American War ends up forming a bit of a turning point because at the end of the war, the United States finds itself in occupation of Cuba. And on the one hand, at the start of the war, the U.S. has promised Cuba its independence. That was a genuine promise. Even uh, folks like Theodore Roosevelt and Henry Cabot Lodge, who later get labeled as sort of, you know, the arch imperialists of the day, it's clear that going into the war, they fully expected to give Cuba its independence at the end of the war. The problem is that at the end of the war, things look a little bit different. Germany has acted very aggressively during the course of the war in ways that give rise to suspicions among American policymakers that it is looking to insert itself into the Western Hemisphere and in particular into Cuba. And so what the U.S. ends up doing is it gives Cuba its independence, but with uh, sort of internal fetters in the form of something called the Platt Amendment, which basically 
prevents Cuba from exercising its sovereignty in the way that most nations uh, normally do. And the idea is, well, if we can just sort of control how Cubans exercise their internal uh, sovereignty, then perhaps we can prevent them from uh, falling apart into the sort of civil war and revolution that has in other places offered an opportunity for European expansion. And that decision uh, ends up being sort of the start of the slippery slope that over the next two decades leads the U.S. to become more and more involved in the internal affairs of its neighbors. Okay. But I want to stick I want to stick on the before 1898 for a moment. Um, just to make sure we didn't really get the examples in the countries on the table. Just give us a sketch of the kind of places and the kind of things the United States did in the period after the Civil War up through, say, 1898, just to give a flavor of, you know, the early chapters of the book. Sure. So the, the, the first chapter of the book, I think, lays out the U.S. dilemma in a nice way, and it's focused on the Civil War. Uh, one thing that I, I certainly didn't appreciate, and I suspect many listeners also don't appreciate, is that during the U.S. Civil War, Europe's great powers took advantage of the U.S.'s internal distraction to really expand back into the hemisphere in a big way. And this culminates in particular with the French invading and occupying all of Mexico. And the, the French motivation was explicitly the fact that the United States was internally divided, that the North and the South were at each other's throats and couldn't do anything about it. And so French Emperor Napoleon III decides, now is the moment to strike. I'm going to take over all of Mexico. I'm going to turn it into a monarchy. I'm going to import a Habsburg prince from Austria, put him on the throne of Montezuma, and then start moving south through the rest of the hemisphere, turning each of the Latin American republics into monarchies. And from the United States perspective, of course, you can't imagine a bigger potential uh, security threat than what France is doing. And so once the Civil War wraps up, the U.S. within three months has sent 50,000 soldiers to the Rio Grande to essentially tell uh, Emperor Napoleon, if you don't remove French troops, we are going to go to war. And I think it's just this incredibly remarkable moment in American history where the, the United States has just wrapped up what it, it what is and uh, what was at the time and remains to this day the most destructive conflict it has ever fought. And nevertheless, within three months, the United States and half of Johnson's cabinet, including Johnson himself at various times, is willing to go to war with what is at that point the greatest land army in the world over essentially the Monroe Doctrine. And France essentially backs down and surrenders and, and removes its forces from Mexico within two years. But that moment, and in particular, the sort of Mexican weakness and instability that provoked the French invasion, ends up being a template for the next 30 years of American foreign policy, where the U.S. starts becoming very worried about, as I mentioned, all these unstable nations in, in its uh, region. But what, what were some of the countries where it intervened besides Mexico and Cuba? Well, uh, within this period, there's less in the way of direct military interventions. Usually at this point, the U.S. is only really launching military interventions if uh, as a last resort. And so the best example probably is Hawaii. Uh, the U.S. ends up annexing Hawaii in large part because it's afraid that if it doesn't do so, Japan is going to annex it. And so there's this sort of last resort where you, you, re you go in and you uh, use military force only in response to what you see as sort of an imminent uh, possibility of the use of force by a, a foreign great power. Instead, most of the policies is oriented, I think, at um, using things like reciprocity uh, treaties, which lower barriers to trade, 
uh, and sort of cultivating what's called Pan-Americanism, the Pan-Americanism, the shared community among Latin American nations. And the idea here is essentially that if you give these Latin American countries a, a taste of prosperity in the form of increased trade, that will lead to sort of a more stable political institutions, which in turn leads to more trade, which in turn leads to more peace. And over time, you can strengthen your neighbors that way. For obvious reasons, though, that doesn't really end up working very well. And so by the uh, late 1890s, the U.S. is looking to change its strategy. Okay. And so describe that strategy change briefly, and then I have some questions about that. Sure. So as I mentioned, the U.S. ends up in possession of Cuba at the end of the Spanish-American War. The tried and true U.S. policy up until this point is essentially annexation, that when when it, it sees a security threat and it sees uh, and it doesn't have any other way of kind of indirectly stabilizing the country, it simply just ends up annexing that territory. And so you see that not only with Hawaii, but there's a sort of similar dynamic that unfolds with the Philippines and Puerto Rico. And obviously earlier in American history, uh, there's a lot of that as well. For various reasons, uh, the U.S. Uh, Americans don't really uh, or, or have mixed minds, I, I guess I would say, about annexing Cuba. One huge reason is that the Philippine-American War, which is the sort of insurgency launched by the Filipinos after we annex the Philippines, ends up being such a bloody disaster for the United States that there's really just not a lot of appetite for repeating the experience in Cuba. But another large part of the story is simply American racism. Uh, It was always difficult to convince Americans to annex territories with large non-white populations because the concern is that doing so will essentially lead uh, obviously inject uh, large quantities of non-white people into the body politic in a way that for the racist Americans of the day is something that is very much to be avoided. And so those, I think, are the two sort of main factors that prevent Cuba from being annexed. But instead, the, what the United States does is it uh, forces Cuba to accept the Platt Amendment in exchange for its independence. And the Platt Amendment does a lot of things. It uh, requires Cuba not to take out debts past a certain point, It prevents Cuba from leasing or otherwise ceding sovereignty over its territory to any great power. It requires Cuba to give naval bases to the United States. So this is where Guantanamo Guantanamo Bay comes from, for example. Um, But most important is Article 3. Article 3 of the Platt Amendment says that the United States, if essentially there's a, a sufficient degree of political anarchy in Cuba, the United States has a legal right to militarily intervene in Cuba. And the idea behind the Platt Amendment is not, in fact, that the United States is going to be using this as a sort of uh, leverage to get Cuba to do whatever the United States wants it to do. Instead, the idea is that it's essentially going to act as a stabilizing mechanism in Cuban politics, because if you're a Cuban uh, opposition group or if you're uh, unhappy with the way that Cuban politics are going, you are not going to rebel. You're not going to launch a revolution because you know that if you do so, the United States is going to come in and squash it. And so the idea from the uh, American perspective is that the Platt Amendment is going to act as this sort of Damocles hanging over Cuba's head in a way that is ultimately going to make the Cubans uh, behave and make their society relatively more stable and strong. But none of the examples we've talked about so far, they're all examples of the United States exerting various forms of pressure and influence and coercion, but they're not examples of a regional rampage of invasions and occupations and the like. Can Describe those. So, so that essentially, uh, I think, starts following the years from 1898. 
the the kind of reasoning behind what I just described as Article Three of the Platt Amendment ends up being expanded to the whole region in the form of something called the Roosevelt Corollary, which is this declaration by President Theodore Roosevelt that if any state in the region either misbehaves sufficiently or essentially lapses into sufficient anarchy, then the United States will act as an international policeman and restore order. And so again, the idea is that the United States is going to be this policeman of last resort. And in the event of sufficient uh, disorder or anarchy, it's going to come in and uh, use military force to correct the situation. The problem is that this, this promise ends up setting up very perverse dynamics in a lot of these societies. And so within Cuba itself, for example, it turns out that opposition groups are oftentimes much happier with a U.S. occupation than they are with the continued control of the government by their uh, internal political rivals. And so internal opposition groups start provoking disorder as a way of triggering U.S. uh, interventions. And so in 1906, for instance, the United States reoccupies Cuba and takes it over for three years before once again leaving uh, with the promise that this time will be the last time uh, it comes back, which, of course, is not quite the way things turn out. But the cycle starts really accelerating under the Taft administration in 1909, where a lot of these societies... um, and our neighbors start becoming more and more unstable. And the United States basically concludes that it has to, it takes a certain amount of ownership over their continued stability. And so by the end of the uh, Taft administration to, to kind of jump ahead in the story, the United States is uh, sending Marines to the Dominican Republic, to Nicaragua, to Cuba. Uh, and then under the Wilson administration, this really reaches its peak. We end up occupying Haiti for 20 years. We end up occupying the Dominican Republic for eight years. We end up garrisoning parts of Panama, Cuba, Nicaragua. Uh, we use military force against Mexico multiple times. And in general, there's this sort of unraveling of U.S. foreign policy during these years that leads to this sort of regional rampage that I describe in the yeah. introduction to the book. Okay, so this is the – so I kind of knew this history, but I – you know, it's – in the history of American war powers, which I study, it's often kind of got a little a few paragraphs or a chapter. But I was did not appreciate the scale and the scope and the persistence of these amazing interventions and what you just described. And so there are several paradoxes here. We were intervening to restore order, as you said earlier, but and to maintain order, to, to to ensure that these states weren't seen as attractive targets by the European powers. But as you show, we, in some senses, perpetuated disorder. Um, you, you at one point describe a cascading failure of self-perpetuating destabilization and intervention. Time and time again, the U.S. would intervene to stabilize and strengthen the neighbors. Time and time again, and here I'm quoting from your book, those interventions would miscarry, leading to greater instability that required new and more intrusive interventions. So it sounds like madness in a way. I think that's a fair description. I mean, and certainly when when Theodore Roosevelt declares the Roosevelt Corollary in 1905, he sees the United States acting as this international policeman of the last resort. And Roosevelt, I think, oftentimes gets a rap as being sort of this arch-imperialist, But one of the points to make is that he never actually uses the Roosevelt Corollary except once in the Dominican Republic. And even then, it's a little debatable, but with the consent of the Dominican government. You know, he reoccupies Cuba in 1906, but he does so with the utmost reluctance. And it's fair to say with the enthusiastic uh, approbation of uh, the the Cubans themselves, both the 
party in power and the party out of power, both, you know, which are in the sort of paradoxical sense, uh, encouraging him to come in. And so Roosevelt, you know, he he's actually quite reluctant and actually kind of, I think, in a lot of ways does not intervene as often as his reputation sort of suggests. But the corollary that he sort of saw as, as the United, he saw the United States acting as this international policeman of last resort. But by the time you get to the end of the 1910s, the kind of thinking inside American policy circles, it's become understood that if you want to preserve order and stability in these societies, it's not enough just to threaten to intervene if things get really, really bad. You actually have to go in and you have to nation build from the ground up. You have to you know, fix their sanitation systems. You have to give them new uh, legal codes. You have to kind of train their militaries. You have to, you know, run their courts, their custom houses and all that. And so there's this sort of massive expansion of what Americans realize is necessary if you really want to take a failing or failed state and turn it into something, you know, approximating a relatively stable country. And that's a, a transition in the sort of thinking of Americans that I, I think no, none of them really expected sort of going in, in part because there was this sort of, you know, prevailing progressive spirit of the day that, well, with these, you know, few easy reforms, you're going to fix all of kind of these internal problems, both inside the United States and outside the United States. And of course, that's just not the way it works out. So I have three questions. One is, yeah, you say in various places and, and you paint a picture of the United States was drawn into doing this, but you just said that was it Roosevelt or Taft that you said had a bum rap for being too aggressive? Uh, Roosevelt. Roosevelt, yeah. But but more than that, you say that you know many in Washington opposed aggressive expansionism throughout this period. I mean, even going earlier. And you say that, and you show that Americans weren't hungering for these interventions. So, what were the kind of mechanisms? Was it the foreign policy elite? Was was it Congress? I mean, what were the mechanisms? that led the United States to do these super aggressive things using military force and intervention abroad, you know, and it seems like there wasn't really, what was the agency is what I'm trying to ask. Most of these interventions were carried out by a relatively small group of American policymakers. One of the things that made this, it easier to write this book with a sort of focus on the main characters is that oftentimes this was the decision of just the president or just the secretary of state or just the assistant secretary of state. And by examining their thinking, we really do get a better sense of why the decisions were made. And there isn't this kind of massive bureaucratic process that you have to untangle to figure out exactly why things happened the way they did. One of the points that's just worth making is at this time, you know, it depends on the exact year, but the entire state department is a few hundred employees. And most of those are stationed abroad, you know, as consuls or ambassadors. And so you really have a very small, dedicated staff working in D.C. that is kind of making these decisions. And as I said, most of them were actually quite reluctant to launch these interventions, but they were seen as essentially the least bad option, given the threat that the United States thought it faced. Uh, and so in, I'll give you just one example of, of the Roosevelt intervention in the Dominican Republic that I mentioned earlier. The thing to understand is that at this time, uh, many of uh, the Caribbean nations, almost all of their internal revenues came from taxes on trade, so on customs duties, essentially. Uh, there weren't any you know, direct taxes or income taxes or anything like that. Instead, 90 plus percent of the money they were making as governments was coming from taxing trade. And so if you are a European power and you think you're owed millions of dollars by the Dominican Republic, 
the way that you collect that money under international law is that you uh, use military force against the Dominican Republic and you either blow up essentially parts of their port, their capital, whatever, until they give up and pay you. Or you can actually just seize the money yourself by taking over the Dominican custom houses and then simply helping yourself to a share of whatever trade is passing through until you've essentially uh, collected on whatever debt you, you think you're owed. And by 1904, the uh, Dominican Republic had been experiencing, first off, during the 1890s, it had racked up this enormous debt under this really, really fiscally irresponsible dictator. He ends up being assassinated in 1899, and then the Dominican Republic uh, falls apart into essentially several years of civil war. And so by 1904, the European powers are clamoring uh, to essentially try and collect on their debts. Their warships are visiting the island year after year. And by the end of the year, several European powers approach Roosevelt and they tell him, if you don't do something, we are going to use force essentially against the Dominican Republic. And so what Roosevelt does is he goes to the uh, prevailing government of the Dominican Republic and he says, if you want, we'll sign a treaty with you and the United States will take over Dominican custom houses and we'll administer them for you on your behalf. We will deduct uh, a certain percentage. I think it's something like 55% of all the customs duties, and we will allocate those towards servicing your external debt. And the remainder we'll give you to essentially use for your sort of internal expenses. And the Dominican government agrees to this. In fact, the Dominican government for the better part of a year has been asking for this and much, much more. The Dominican uh, government has actually been asking for everything up to annexation by the United States. But this is about the furthest that uh, Theodore Roosevelt is willing to go. But I, I, I think the, the entire episode sort of illustrates the dynamic that occurred in a lot of these interventions where Roosevelt, I mean, by the end of it, the United States is now running essentially the, the revenue stream for an entire foreign nation, Right. Uh, it's a little bit as if the Chinese came in and started administering the IRS in the United States. But he does so with just the extreme reluctance. I mean, over the entire year, you see him writing to his his family members, to his close friends, and he's he's essentially saying over and over again, I don't want to do this. The less I have to do with the Dominicans, the better. And But it's only this sort of final European threat at the end of the year that really forces him into this action. And so I give that particular episode is sort of an example of the dynamic that oftentimes repeated where you had policymakers who were first and foremost concerned about preventing European expansion. They came, there were various moments where for a variety of reasons, they believed that it was either imminent or that something was going to happen that was really going to kind of open the gates to European expansion in the future. And these policymakers would quite reluctantly agree to either use force or to take some major step uh, in American foreign policy to prevent that, that that kind of threat from arising. And so this is sort of a dynamic that ends up kind of repeating over and over and over again during these two decades. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan 
when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. But also during those two decades, as you show, these interventions fail or are self-defeating. The efforts at stabilization foster destabilization. And why, why did they keep doing it for so long? Why did it go on for 15 or 20 years when, as you show, it, was, it wasn't improving the situation? I mean, and it, well, that's why, let me ask the question a different way. Was it improving the situation? What is the baseline? I mean, was the policy successful in the sense that it would have been worse if there hadn't been intervention in these nations? I, I guess I just, it's surprising that time and time again, the interventions in various ways failed, and yet we kept doing it. And I'm going to, the next question is going to be about the modern analogy, um, because yes. the, the analogy to modern times is remarkable. But so what is the, what is the account there? Why, why was there no learning is another way, or was there? Why, why, why does there seem to be no learning during this period about the futility or inefficacy of the interventions? Yeah, so I think there's two or three answers, and it's a little bit complicated. But what I would say is that first, uh, for a variety of reasons, it's hard for American policymakers who are kind of dealing with this in real time to kind of understand what's going on. One of the reasons is that a lot of these interventions, at least at first, seem like they're actually going extremely well. So to take the example of the Dominican Republic, the United States comes in in 1905 and takes over the Dominican custom houses. And for the next, there's a, a revolution, uh, a sort of internal palace coup at the end of the year. But by uh, early 1906, there's this new president of the Dominican Republic. And he actually maintains control of the country through 1911. And there's a couple of civil wars and revolutions, but each is more anemic than the last. And for the most part, American policymakers look at the Dominican Republic and they say, my God, we solved the problem. These custom houses ended revolution, have ended civil war, because in the past, these insurgents, these rebels would fight over the custom houses because that's where the money was. And by simply putting U.S. Marines in front of it, we've prevented that from being kind of something that can be done. And as a result, you know, revenue in the Dominican Republic uh, soars. I mentioned that the Dominican government is receiving only, I think, like 45% of the uh, customs revenues going forward. But as it turns out, because the situation has stabilized so much, 45% of the revenues ends up being more than it was getting before the U.S. kind of installs this customs receivership. And so Americans think that everything is going very, very well. What they don't understand is that this new Dominican president is actually quite competent compared to a lot of his predecessors. And it's really only his sort of effective governance that is keeping things in order. And so when he gets assassinated in 1911, the Dominican Republic once again falls apart. Uh, Within a year, the Taft administration essentially has to overthrow the new Dominican government. And then over the next few years, you see several more regime changes by the United States until eventually Wilson orders the full occupation of the Dominican Republic in 1916. And U.S. forces don't end military government until 1924. You know, but up until that time, up until 1911, where things really fall apart, the Dominican model is sort of seen as this, you know, paragon of how this is supposed to work. And so the U.S. starts uh, exporting this model to a lot of other countries in the region, not realizing the sort of internal flaws 
that are kind of um, uh, undermining it in, in a way that American officials can't appreciate. So that's that's one part of the problem. There's like a little bit of a time lag where a lot of these initial interventions seem to work decently well at first and uh, policymakers sort of just don't see the negative effects. Another part of this, too, is that Americans are not really willing to own up to the ways in which their own actions are contributing to instability. Instead, for a variety of reasons, ranging from sort of racism and kind of internal prejudices to sort of, you know, inherent uh, idealism, Americans blame setbacks on sort of the actual, you know, local people rather than the incentives that their policies are setting up. And so there's an unwillingness to kind of learn uh, in part because there's this assumption that it's really not the Americans' fault and there's a, a blindness to the way in which Americans are encouraging instability. And then, of course, the final factor here is that there's a, a partisan aspect to it. I think by the end of the Taft administration, I mean, the Taft administration is where things, you know, where relations with Latin America really enter freefall. And by the end of the Taft administration, I think there is a real opportunity for a turnaround. But the Wilson administration comes in, and part of this is just who Woodrow Wilson is as a human being. Part of this is that, you know, Democrats and Republicans are naturally sort of suspicious of each other's motives. But for whatever reason, Wilson basically concludes that the problem with previous administrations was they had bad intentions, that they were shilling for business interests, that they were, you know, acting jingoist and aggressive. And he basically concludes that as long as he acts with good intentions, and of course he knows his intentions are good, then everything's going to work out just fine. And so Wilson ends up applying similar policy prescriptions to the same problems. And of course, he gets the exact same results, much to his surprise. And so it really isn't until the end of the 1910s that you sort of see this kind of acknowledgement on both sides of the political aisle that these strategies have failed to stabilize or strengthen these societies. But what is the ultimate normative take? I mean, you didn't really get into this in the book. The goal was regional hegemony, which I think the United States achieved in some sense. Mm -hmm. And the goal was regional hegemony. The goal was keeping out the European powers. The strategy was to use various techniques, including military intervention and the like, to bring order it often failed to bring order and it often provoked more destabilized even more or continued destabilization. But I mean, would you call the overall policy through 1918 a success or not? I mean, what is the counterfactual? What if we, what, what would, if we hadn't gone and intervened, would it, what is your assessment of that? Yeah. So I think that's an incredibly difficult question. I would say that the policy is a success exclusively in the sense that the ultimate objective of the United States was to keep European powers out, and the policy effectively did that. It was a failure in every other respect. I mean, the United States was trying to stabilize and strengthen these states as a way of keeping Europe out, and instead it destabilized them and, you know, essentially ended up in situations where the United States was occupying many of them and, and in other ways, much more involved in their affairs than it wanted to be. The, the, the difficult question, as you said, is the counterfactual. What would have happened if the United States hadn't done this? I think you can debate this uh, for kind of individual interventions. Uh, certainly there's some in which case, in where you, I think it's you know fair with 2020 hindsight to say, well, if the United States hadn't done this or hadn't gone in or hadn't intervened, then there was no real prospect of Europe getting involved and you know, nothing, nothing bad would have happened. And so 
particularly, for, for example, once World War I starts, the U.S. sort of, in a lot of ways, is a little bit too paranoid about you know, France and Germany kind of going into Latin America at a time when they're literally fighting for their lives in, you know, in uh, Western Europe. But it's hard to know in part because a lot of the European colonialism and expansion elsewhere in the world wasn't necessarily premeditated. It wasn't necessarily sort of planned from, you know, the, the central government's perspective, but, you know, sort of developed, I don't want to say in an organic way, but in a more natural way, based on sort of events in the ground. And so you can imagine a world in which, for various reasons, one European power ends up, you know, taking a foothold in the Dominican Republic or Venezuela or elsewhere. And this sort of sets, triggers the kind of uh, scramble for Africa type dynamics that American policymakers were really worried about, and then leads other powers to say, well, you know, if Germany's got a foothold in Venezuela, then we, Great Britain, need to have a foothold as well, or else Germany will have an advantage. And, you know, suddenly you have this kind of competitive dynamic that really leads the, the hemisphere to be uh, carved up. And so, you know, it, it's hard to say. And, and, and part of this too is just what, what, what amount of risk are you willing to take if you're an American policymaker? If I tell you that there's a 10% chance of that happening, you know, how much are you willing to do? How much force are you willing to use to kind of mitigate that 10% chance? If the chance is 50%, you know, what's your answer? What's your answer if it's 1%? And so I think for Americans, there was this constant sort of political, you know, calculation, this constant calculation of risk that didn't necessarily lead to sort of neat answers, but sort of ended up in an overall kind of you know, better safe than sorry mindset, especially because, you know, and this is this is a very sort of cynical thing to say, but I think it's true that the United States wasn't really the one that was bearing the costs in the first instance, right? Yeah, and so exactly. most, yeah, most of these interventions were, you know, I mean, even at their kind of the biggest ones, you're talking about a few thousand US Marines. It, it was not especially taxing or costly for, for Americans to be doing this. And so from their perspective, you know, even if it meant essentially overthrowing governments and sort of, you know, significantly, um, you know, as I say in the introduction, breaking nations, you know, to some extent, that was a cost that was worth bearing if the alternative was running a significant risk of a European power establishing itself in the hemisphere. Right. Okay. So your earlier description of the United States in the early 20th century, figuring out that it needed to do real nation building to achieve order and that the softer tactics wouldn't work for achieving order in strategically important places sounds almost exactly like the logic that the United States, you know, with, with obviously adjusting for context used in Afghanistan and Iraq, among other places. And neither one of those were successful either. You could say that, you know, we could argue about whether they left the nations off with worse. They probably did certainly in Iraq, so how do you see, is there an analogy there? Is what the United States did in the early 21st century like what it did in the early 20th century? How do you see them as analogies and disanalogies in terms of motivation, in terms of deceiving ourselves about what nation building can accomplish and the like? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the questions, especially as we kind of pass uh, the 20th anniversary of the um, invasion of Iraq, I think everyone agrees that uh, the occupation of Iraq was a not everyone. Most people agree that the invasion of Iraq was a major strategic and tactical mistake. I think there's still sort of this debate as to whether it was a failure of execution or just 
that whether it would have failed essentially no matter what the United States did. Because it's certainly easy to go back and say, well, clearly these particular steps that were taken were mistakes, right? So we shouldn't have debathified the country. We shouldn't have essentially, you know, dismantled the military. And one of the one of the, I think, lessons from my book and kind of from the sweep of interventionisms and how I think uniformly unsuccessful they were at the nation building project is it may be possible to for the for the United States to successfully nation build, but if so, it's almost always going to be the exception. And that there are, I think, sort of inherent aspects of the nation building project, especially when you're trying to do it from the outside using force, that lead to failure. Uh, I talk about some of these dynamics in the book. There's a chapter where I sort of step back and sort of analyze each of these interventions and and why they failed. And one of the points that I make is that political uh, stability, I think, in large part reflects the uh, creation uh, and uh, endurance of norms and institutions that are widely accepted by the government, right? That essentially, you know, have, if not universal, then near universal um, approval within the within the state, and that end up being essentially the rules of the road for the for the politics of the state. And it is very, very difficult to impose those kinds of norms and institutions from the outside, uh, in large part first, because anything that's external to the nation has a sort of inherent uh, foreignness and inherent kind of anti-nationalist flavor to it that makes it hard for local um, local people to accept. And the other aspect to this too, is that when the United States went into a lot of these nations, they oftentimes did have, to some extent, certain norms and institutions that did act as a stabilizing force. But the United States just was too blind and and didn't necessarily appreciate that and would oftentimes destroy those norms and institutions in its attempts to build up what it saw as better ones. And, you know, on top of that, there was also just sort of a gravitational force that when you have this massive, massive, massive power and your, you know, uh, external power and you're a local politician, you either have the, you know, incentives to essentially look to your kind of constituents needs, or you have the incentive to cater to the whims of this external power. And when that external power is, you know, running your society, those incentives really flip in a way that kind of undermines the overall project of, you know, teaching politicians or helping politicians to, to run their nations and sort of govern effectively. And so there's all sorts of these dynamics, I think, when you look at the kind of sweep of these interventions that suggest that kind of U.S. nation building projects are going to be, again, if not impossible, at least extremely, extremely difficult. And But what explains there was there, in both the early 20th century examples and the early 21st century examples, there just seems to have been an extraordinary unjustified optimism or even naivete about what we would accomplish, what we could accomplish, how hard it would be. First of all, is that fair? And if second of all, what if anything explains it? Is it is it just the ideology of American American exceptionalism, the ideology of American belief and in, in global democracy? I mean, what accounts for it? It's a very fair description, and I think American exceptionalism and sort of faith in American principles is is a fairly big part of it. I mean, you saw that with Iraq, where I think there was this unjustified optimism among many American policymakers that as long as you put into place electoral mechanisms for running a democracy, that that's all you really need. That once people are, you know, voting and uh, going to the ballot box and all that, that everything else will sort of work out. 
And it turns out, of course, that things are much, much more complicated than that. And you can't, you know, have a liberal democracy simply by, you know, imposing electoral mechanisms from the outside. And it's a similar story with a lot of what we are attempting to do in these uh, Latin American nations where there was this belief that there were these silver bullets, these quick fixes, these these things that as long as we could just fix this one problem, everything else would sort of naturally flow. Uh, and so, you know, the custom houses were a good example where a lot of American policymakers said, well, as long as, you know, U.S. officials are running the custom houses, we will essentially have solved every single the, the root cause of all the political dysfunction in these societies. And of course, that wasn't true, right? I mean, each of these societies had these incredibly intricate political ecosystems where, you know, touching one aspect of the web would immediately reverberate across the rest of the web and sort of create, you know, unintended consequences, you know, here, there and everywhere. And they, there just wasn't this sort of appreciation among American policymakers that that was the case. And I don't know, I, I guess I don't know if that's, I, there's not like one factor I can point to as being part of that. I, in the book, I talk a little bit about progressive ideology of the time, you know, capital P progressivism. But in general, I think it really is just sort of part of the kind of American can-do sort of spirit that I think oftentimes contributes to this failure to understand how complicated it is to actually reform political institutions in a way that effectively leads them to to be stable in the long term. Yeah, I'm not going to ask the question again, but it it just I'll just state it again. There just seems to be both in the early 20th and early 21st century examples and there just seems to be a remarkable lack of learning from the past and repeating the mistakes of the past. Yeah. Well, one, one thing that, so one, one part of the answer, I guess that I didn't get to is that, you know, it, I think if you had gotten to American policymakers at the end of this two decade period of interventionism, and if you had said, you know, was this what you expected? Was this what you would have wanted? They would have said no. But at the same time, if you had asked them, was it worth it in the sense that it kept out European expansion? I think they would have said yes, assuming that they continued to see that as the real risk. And so unlike Iraq and Afghanistan, although or perhaps maybe like Iraq and Afghanistan, where for all the blood and treasure that was spent, it may be possible that, you know, there are those in Washington who say, well, if nothing else, we kicked al-Qaeda out of Afghanistan and we prevented, you know, Saddam Hussein from restarting his WMD program. I'm not sure, you know, I, I, I guess I won't comment on, on whether that is an accurate take on what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan, but you could sort of imagine that there are, that there are these sort of ultimate goals that, you know, despite the sort of failures of a lot of the intermediate goals were nevertheless served. It seems to me that that's a much easier argument to make about the first 20 years of the 20th century that you talk about in your book than the first 20 years of the 21st century. I mean, at least at the end of the period in the early 20th century, there was, there had been a, you know, there was regional hegemony, as you call it. And I just think that is, a, that the, the, the overall strategic success is a much, much, much harder case to make, especially in Iraq. Okay, let's shift to the broader lessons here. You know, with your IR, with your international relations hat on, you try to draw some lessons from the U.S. experience about why rising powers act the way they do, uh, especially in trying to consolidate regional regional control. So what are the lessons we should learn and apply them, say, to China or Iran, maybe China? Sure. So I, I think at the broadest level, it, it's almost a truism that all things considered, great powers would prefer to have spheres of influence 
and would prefer to be regional hegemons. And by regional hegemon, what I mean is that a great power is essentially the only great power in its immediate neighborhood, and that no other great power anywhere in the world can put up a serious fight in that neighborhood. And so regional hegemony is in a lot of ways seen as the kind of ultimate prize of international relations, because if you can achieve that kind of local uh, supremacy, then it means that you are essentially kind of invulnerable from a security perspective and that you can therefore intervene abroad and in general sort of go abroad and act abroad without having to worry about anything kind of happening closer to your your borders. Whereas on the other hand, if you have a great power that's established, you know, right next door to you, then you are constantly going to have to be worried about what that great power is doing there. You're going to have to keep your military forces concentrated at home to meet that threat. Uh, and in general, you're going to be just much more sort of localized and stuck in your in your kind of interests. And so, so regional hegemony is a big deal. It is also one of the kind of odd facts of international relations that in the modern era, the United States is the only great power that has ever actually achieved it. The others that have come close are Napoleonic France, uh, Imperial Germany in World War I, Nazi Germany in World War II, and Imperial Japan in World War II. And as we know from all four of those examples, the effort failed and failed in ways that were bloody and cataclysmic and led to world wars. And I think as we look to sort of today's politics, we should first and foremost understand that nations like China, China in particular, are seeking regional hegemony in the sense that China, all else being equal, would love to be in a situation where there are no other great powers. And in particular, uh, the United States is no longer present in East Asia. And a large part, I think, of Chinese foreign policy since the early 1990s has been sort of focused on blunting American influence in East Asia with the ultimate goal of expelling the United States from East Asia. And this is not a process that's going to happen in a day. It's not a process that's going to happen in a week. It's not a process that the Chinese are willing to go to war for, you know, next Tuesday. But it is something that is, I think, the long sort of the the guiding light of Chinese foreign policy because, you know, frankly, because that's exactly what's rational from the Chinese perspective. They will be much safer as a nation if they don't have to worry about U.S. You know, forces stationed in Japan, the Philippines, and you know, Guam, and all these other places around East Asia. So that's one of the, the, the big lessons. The, the other lesson that I draw on the book, or the, the, and in some sense the question that motivated the book, is the question of whether China is going to be aggressive and expansionist as it pursues that regional hegemony. The historical record is not does not give a lot of reasons for optimism on that front. Rising powers tend to be very aggressive and expansionist, as the examples I just rattled off uh, suggest. And of course, as we've been discussing, the United States was no exception. So the question is, is China going to behave any differently? And it's always dangerous, and I, I sort of try to underscore this in the book, that uh, drawing comparisons from historical eras, especially ones so different as even a, a century ago, means that it's not, I don't think it's fair to say, well, the United States acted this way and therefore China will act the exact same way as well. But I do think it's useful to sort of look at why the United States acted the way it did and see if sort of similar mechanisms could drive China to act in a similar way. And one of the points that I make in the book is that what really spurred US uh, aggression and interventionism was this concern about the expansion of foreign influence into unstable areas of strategic importance, and so particularly areas around its borders. 
And the point that I make in the uh, conclusion of the book is that you could easily imagine a world in which China faces that same sort of problem and, and acts in an aggressive way. And so just to give you a concrete example, if North Korea implodes tomorrow and there's a risk that South Korea is going to move into North Korea and essentially uh, unite the Korean Peninsula and that America will continue stationing uh, military forces on the Korean Peninsula, only now that they'll be right on the Chinese border. I think from the Chinese perspective, that is an incredibly grave security threat. And it's very easy to imagine a world in which the Chinese once again uh, cross the border into Korea with their own military forces to prevent that. And you can sort of multiply that example across a few different uh, areas of East Asia and essentially come to the same conclusion that there are, really are these potential hotspots that could lead to the Chinese using force. With the major difference being that the United States is, if not a hegemon, a near hegemon, and is trying to check China in all of these endeavors. Exactly. And it's, it's that, that both uh, makes the use of force more likely and less likely. It makes it more likely in the sense that I think one of the advantages the United States had while it was rising to power is that its opponents, its, its primary great power rivals, were always distracted by things happening in Europe itself. And so Germany, for instance, really surfaces essentially during the Spanish-American War as sort of the primary threat to Latin America in the United States' eyes. But Germany, of course, was worried about a lot of things happening on the continent, right? It was worried about uh, the British naval program. It was worried about France. It was worried about the, you know, the rise of Russia. And so these, you know, kind of internal distractions in Europe meant that Germany was never really focused on preventing the United States from rising in the same way that the United States is now very focused on preventing China, um, not from rising necessarily, but from sort of consolidating its own regional hegemony. And so the dynamic is much more, I think, bipolar and and the United States is much more kind of focused on the competition in a way that the United States' own rivals never were. On the other hand, that also means that from the Chinese perspective, the threat is, I think, much more acute. Um, you know, Americans understood that Germany, while it may have these aspirations to colonize part of the Western Hemisphere, you know, it had other competing priorities. Whereas I think the Chinese, you know, probably rightly believe that at this point, American foreign policy is getting primarily geared towards ensuring that China doesn't uh, end up supplanting the United States in East Asia. And so from the Chinese perspective, anything that the United States might do to expand its influence in into East Asia is going to be something that they're, I think, correspondingly much more worried about. Okay. Uh, I want to ask you a legal question for my last question. And it's a, an issue that you don't discuss in the book and you might not know the answer to, but I want to ask it anyway. And that is you document all of these unilateral interventions into regional countries. The vast majority of them, some of them were, but most of them weren't authorized by Congress. Isn't that correct? Uh, nearly all were not authorized yeah, by exactly. Congress. Yeah, exactly. And so I'm just wondering what the theory of presidential power was here and how much of a debate there was about it. So I know that in the 19th and early 20th centuries, there was an accepted theory that the United States could use self-defense. And that probably was an expanding rationale, I'm guessing, during the period. There was also the idea that self-defense may extend to, or Article 2 may extend to, protecting U.S. persons and property abroad. That was an idea that was floating around in the 19th century. So I guess I, I just want to know, were these controversial interventions legally? Was Congress jumping up and down? Were people saying that the president was 
violating the Constitution? If not, and to the extent these things were discussed, what was the theory? So great question. Uh, you're right that the book didn't go into this. And I should say that I didn't myself look at, you know, the Department of Justice archives. And so the answer I'm going to give you is a little bit. I, I, that's fine. I'm sure there's nothing in the Department of Justice archives. On this. <laughs> well, this did come up a few times. I, uh, first, let me say I had this absolutely wonderful foreign relations law professor in law school by the name of Jack Goldsmith, who uh, taught us about this case, uh, Durand versus Hollins, I believe that, uh, as you mentioned, kind of at least underlined the possibility that the kind of inherent self-defense powers that come with Article 2 would include the executive branch using military force in protection of U.S. citizens and their property. And in a lot of these cases, I mean, in part because what the United States was concerned about was unstable nations, you know, ones torn by civil war and revolution. In a lot of those cases, U.S. lives and property were either meaningfully in danger or sometimes, you know, at least plausibly in danger. And so uh, to give you just one example, when in 1906, when the United States reoccupies Cuba, uh, the Cuban opposition, uh, the, the rebels are essentially threatening to burn American plant, uh, sugar plantations. Uh, and they do so explicitly knowing that that is a way of bringing the United States in. It's, it's very much kind of an elaborate, like, you know, either you reoccupy the country or we'll burn these plantations until you reoccupy the country. And so that I think there was that kind of justification. Uh, a number of these other uh, interventions relied actually more on the threat of force than the actual use of force. And so it would be the United States either moving forces around or, you know, for instance, uh, steaming a, a, a naval force down to Nicaragua, you know, bluffing to the Nicaraguan president that, you know, we're going to invade and, and sort of eject you from power. And so he ends up kind of fleeing. And so the U.S. accomplishes regime change without actually using force. So in some cases, there just wasn't that the, the Article 2 justification was a little easier, I think, to kind of swallow. All that said, the answer is that most of these interventions, I think, sort of flew under the radar, but some of them really did actually get a lot of uh, flack from Congress, uh, oftentimes from an explicitly sort of separation of powers legal perspective. And so when Theodore Roosevelt declares this customs receivership in the Dominican Republic in 1905 that we've discussed a few times, uh, Congress goes ballistic and it takes the better part of two years to get Congress to actually sign off on the treaty. And in the meantime, the the president is essentially acting without any sort of uh, formal legal authority from Congress and running this customs receivership essentially on his own authority. And you have kind of a similar dynamic with the reoccupation of Cuba in 1906, where there are some congressmen at the time who are writing Roosevelt as this civil war in Cuba is getting started. Well, you'll need to talk to Congress about, you know, reoccupying Cuba or anything like that. And there's this sort of back and forth in the letters where Theodore Roosevelt is like, are you crazy? This is sort of a situation that's going to develop in the next couple of days. And we really have to act now if we want to resolve it. And then the final point that I'll make is that oftentimes Congress did actually push back on executive attempts to to intervene. And so during the Taft administration, there were these attempts to set up similar customs receiverships in Nicaragua and Honduras, um, and Congress essentially refused to act on the treaties. And in Nicaragua, the executive branch essentially ignored Congress and just did it anyway. Uh, in Honduras, however, uh, for slightly different reasons, it ended up not, uh, not imposing the customs receivership. And so uh, Honduras actually ends up escaping the clutches of American fiscal control in part because Congress is sort of 
being difficult and refusing to give the president the authority that he's asking for. But I've looked at some of those customs cases for my work on non-binding agreements and Mm -hmm. the congressional pushback there, as I recall, maybe there was an article two pushback, maybe there was a use of force pushback, but the pushback there that the president was making arrangements and not using the treaty power and and was cutting out the Senate or was cutting out the Congress. The, The Congress was claiming that this should, this should, come through us for approval. Uh, and it wasn't, at least in the, it may have been also making a kind of use of force argument, but it was more that. And that's actually where, at least in the history that I studied, where non-binding agreements get going because Roosevelt and Taft start saying, well, we can do these arrangements informally. They're non-binding. They're only binding on my presidency. And that's the way that that, that debate sorted itself out. But I, I, one just doesn't get the sense that there was a the president is using force force unjustifiably in the many interventions. I mean, Wilson sent quite a few troops to Mexico, I think. And I, I think, was there a debate about that? Do you remember, do, did you come across? Yeah. I just don't know what the congressional debate was about, you know, not forget the kind of shows of force. I mean, sending troops into a country. Yeah. So um, there's two major interventions in Mexico under uh, Wilson. The first is that he occupies Veracruz. And the second is uh, he launches what's called the punitive expedition, where he sends, I think, something like 10,000 Americans uh, into Mexico from, you know, the from the Rio Grande to go catch uh, Pancho Villa. Right, right. And each of those has slightly different uh, justifications. So the, the occupation of uh, Veracruz, Congress actually ends up passing, I forget if it's a resolution, but there is at least some formal vote that is taken in Congress in which Wilson, I believe, asked explicitly for authorization to use force. Now, it turns out that he actually authorizes the force, and I think the occupation might even get underway before Congress actually votes on this. Uh, And it turns out that when Congress is voting on this, they actually expect that Wilson is going to occupy a different port in Mexico. And Wilson sort of at the very last minute switches his focus to Veracruz because there's a German freighter that's going to be uh, dropping off weapons there. And so he sort of at the last minute sort of changes exactly how this is going to go down. But at least there, there was sort of congressional buy-in. And I think there was sort of a broader understanding by Congress that this was authorized. Uh, The punitive expedition is a little bit different because it's in response to Pancho Villa's raid on the United States, where he and a group of 200 horsemen basically cross the border, kill a lot of Americans, burn down a town, and then kind of retreat into Mexico. And so I think that's exactly it's a much easier case of self-defense. And frankly, you know, I mean, the entire country is baying for Pancho Villa's blood. And so Wilson actually, in a lot of ways, has to sort of uh, slow roll the the intervention to avoid a full-scale war with Mexico. And he actually... I am not particularly, um, I, I don't have a lot of nice things to say about Wilson in the book, but this really actually is one instance where a different president might have potentially led to a much, much bigger uh, war with Mexico than actually what ends up have, uh, coming to pass. Sean, that's great. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Jay. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and Lawfare No Bull. And of course, check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. 
The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this, for this episode was Noam Band. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.